to the weekly podcast of Science in the City, the public gateway of the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, May 23rd, 2008. I'm Alana Rangi. When you hear somebody say global warming or stem cell research, do you think politics or science? Chances are, it's a little bit of both. The relationship between science and policy is a necessary but complicated one. In this week's podcast, you'll sit in on a roundtable discussion hosted by the Science Communication Consortium. Three prominent figures in the American science policy arena will share their thoughts on how scientists should deal with policymakers and how policymakers can deal with the sometimes crazy world of science. Introducing the participants in the order you'll hear them is moderator Kate Seip. Starting on my left is Dr. Joanne Carney. She's the director of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, Center for Science Technology in Congress. Sitting next to her is Michael Stebbins, Director of Biology Policy for the Federation of American Scientists, President of the Scientists and Engineers for American Action Fund, and the author of the book Sex, Drugs, and DNA. And sitting next to him is David Goldston, former Chief of Staff for the House Committee on Science and author of Nature Magazine's Party of One column on Congress and science policy. And we welcome them all here today. Thank you for joining us. We're going to begin the event by asking each of our panelists to speak for about 10 to 15 minutes on their professional backgrounds and how the organizations and committees that they work for now or have worked for in the past have worked to bridge the communication gap between scientists and members of Congress. You've all done this in a lot of different capacities, which makes this panel very dynamic. So we're interested to hear all of your thoughts on that. So I'll turn it over to Joanne. In terms of my background, I currently serve, as she said, as the director of the AAAS Center for Science, Technology, and Congress. I am not a PhD. I'm not a scientist. I have a master's in science, technology, and public policy, so I'm a political scientist. And there are many of us like that, and there are many programs like that around the United States. Before working for AAAS, I worked for a different nonprofit. I worked for an American Institute for Aeronautics and Astronautics. So I've been dealing with science and technology policy for about 20 years, from going from NASA and to a much wider pool of science and technology across the board. So when you think of AAAS, you think of the journal Science. And AAAS is a lot more than that. We are an international organization. We do international activities. We're very involved in science education issues. We're very involved in media outreach and public outreach. And we're also involved in science policy, which is what I will address. AAAS's policy role, and my role in particular, is to try and provide a voice for science, the science and engineering community on policy issues in four different ways. We try to serve as a source of information and a forum for discussion and debate and consensus building. We also try to express the views of the science and engineering community on key issues. And we also try to bring science and scientists into the policymaking process. And we try to foster communication among scientists and engineers and the public at large because the public are constituents. They're the people voting. So we try to engage them in that way. In terms of trying to be a resource for information, what AAAS does is, in many respects, not much different than what a lot of other scientific societies. We monitor legislation. We have a newsletter. We have legislative trackers on the website. We have a policy briefs on the website. We have different ways of trying to get information that's accessible to the public as well as to Hill staff. We do congressional briefings. We respond to requests for information from Hill staff. And we'll do private briefings. 
But one thing that I think that makes us different is that we try to provide certain tools that are considered very objective and timely. And an, an example of one tool that AAAS does provide is an R&D budget analysis. It's a project that was started over 35 years ago. We have a very decentralized science and technology enterprise. It's very decentralized within the federal government. It was hard for scientists and policymakers to track where dollars were going. So AAAS took upon itself to do that. We put out a book once a year and we track programs and agencies. We have historical data. There is just a wealth of information that has gained in reputation over the years. People on the Hill and off the Hill rely on. A second goal that we do is we try to wield influence, and we're not a lobbying organization. We're kind of an advocacy organization. So we do a lot of the same things that a lot of other scientific societies do. We testify. We send letters. We have board statements. We might write editorials to express views on key issues. It's a way we try to express our concerns without necessarily knocking on doors and saying, vote for this particular bill. One key example of something that we do that I think does stand out and I think does make a difference when you're trying to wield influence is trying to partner with other organizations. And just like large scientific enterprises where if you bring groups together and you can maximize and leverage your resources, the same can be true when you're trying to wield influence in a policy-making process. And two examples of where we've been successful in that is in the issue of visas. Right after 9-11, there was a hold put on foreign students accessing visas. And the scientific community, university community, and different societies, including AAAS, gathered around the table to discuss the problem, to gather the data about what are we really truly seeing, and put together a statement of recommendations. One thing that I want to emphasize on that is when we worked on this, yes, there was a public dialogue of editorials and articles about concern, but where the rubber really met the road and the way we were really truly able to influence the process is that we really worked behind the scenes. It wasn't all about complaining. It was really about trying to reach out to the State Department, to reach out to the Department of Homeland Security. This is what we are seeing. These are recommendations that we think would improve the system, and, and over time it actually happened. We also try to bring scientists into the policy arena, and we also try to foster communication, and we do that through two programs in particular. One is our Science and Technology Policy Fellowship Program, and this is a program that was also started about 35 years ago, where we offer an opportunity for PhD scientists and engineers to spend a year in a policy office on Capitol Hill. It started out with seven. It's now grown to about 150 scientists and engineers every year, um, it's not just on Capitol Hill. It's also in the executive branch. And this is an opportunity for policymakers to have access to great minds and wonderful talent, but it's a two-way street. It's an opportunity for scientists and engineers to also learn about the policymaking process. And they become better educated in the sense they have a better understanding of the role science plays in the policymaking process. And whether they get Potomac fever and they stay in D.C. or if they go back to campus, we think that that is a wonderful tool for the next generation of scientists to have that better understanding. We also offer a similar type of opportunity for media. We give graduate and undergraduate students, we have a mass media fellowship. You can spend 10 weeks 
working in different media capacities in newspapers or radio or television. Again, it's an opportunity for journalists to have a better understanding about science and how to communicate science and making sure it's accurate, but it's also an opportunity for the scientists to understand the difficulty that journalists face when they have a deadline. So again, it's a two-way street where both sectors are learning from one another. There's many, many things that AAAS does and the ways that we try to influence or improve the way that we intersect both with the public and with policymakers. Thanks, Joanne. We're going to turn the microphone over to Michael Stebbins. My background's a little bit different from Joanne's. I got my PhD in genetics while working at Cold Spring Harbor Lab, and from there went and became an editor at a journal called Nature Genetics. It's part of the Nature Publishing Group, which I guess now David writes for Nature Proper. After a couple of years there, I was at a meeting, actually, with Francis Collins and was talking to him about policy, and he mentioned that they had a fellowship program at the National Human Genome Research Institute. And so I applied and went and moved down there and worked at the Human Genome Research Institute for a couple months and then moved over to the Senate and worked for Harry Reid while he was minority leader. At that point, I took a job with the Federation of American Scientists to run their biology shop, mostly working in biosecurity with the idea of reshaping the way that biosecurity policy is organized in D.C., not necessarily getting involved directly with pushing and pulling policy on the congressional level. There's a couple different ways that policy happens in D.C. The main difference, though, is that either pushing and pulling it at the legislative level or at the executive branch level, which would be all the agencies. And it's a very different operation, pushing and pulling one or the other. And they're susceptible to different tools. The idea was to go to FAS and bring some new ideas there on biosecurity. At the same time, I was interested in getting more involved in the politics side of science policy. So while in my first year there, uh, Henry Kelly, who's the president of FAS, and I got together and reformed an organization which had existed under the name of Scientists and Engineers for Change. So we became the sort of swift boat captains who dig science. And it worked out pretty well. We've now reorganized as a nonprofit organization, so we actually have some rules about what we can and cannot say publicly. So we started Scientists and Engineers for America and got it up and running uh, for the 2006 election, and now are a fully active organization where we are doing a number of things. One is we're tracking the legislative record and position record of every member of Congress and every candidate for Congress and, of course, presidency. So that's 471 elections, I guess, this year. We started off with 500 pages on the web, with Wikipedia-style web page that we put out. So the idea, though, here was that you can actually take a Web 2.0 approach to politics, and it seems to be working. I'm not, of course, the only person who's come up with that. Larry Lessig with Change Congress and a number of other organizations, Sunshine Foundation, if you're looking for interesting things to surf on the web, have done some really interesting stuff. In addition to that, we took the approach that we need more scientists in Congress and at least scientifically literate people running for office. And so we're actually training scientists to work in campaigns and run for office. So, for example, on May 10th, we're going to have a workshop at Georgetown University for 100 scientists to come down and get trained. If you want to work in a campaign or ever thinking of running for office, you can do that. The idea here is that we get more people who are scientifically literate involved in the campaigns. There are parallel efforts that we're seeing. A lot of people are familiar with the Science Debate 2008 efforts that I guess are ongoing. So those are some of the things that we did. 
At FAS, we've taken the same sort of approach, and there's a number of ways that we've done it, and the techniques that we've used are interesting and I think somewhat novel. So, for example, we approached the Department of Homeland Security, had a website called ready.gov, still active, of course, and gets lots of hits, and it's their public response website. And so the information on there was wrong, and to this day, actually, there's some information on there that's, that's factually incorrect, which we thought was somewhat irresponsible. So what we did was we tried to convince people that this could be changed very easily and to no avail. So I took an intern and had them take all of the code from their site and steal it, fix all of the information, and then put it up as a website called reallyready.org. <laughs> Homeland Security responded predictably by saying that we were confusing the public, which of course got us two more rounds of press for it. And several things on the site actually changed as a result of a 20-year-old intern spending a couple weeks doing this. The idea was that you can actually push and pull an agency through embarrassment. In the case of Homeland Security, actually sometimes that is what you have to do. Other agencies, that's the last resort. It really is, and it's really not the way to go about doing it. Federation of American Scientists also did it with the State Department having to do with their small arms program and tracking the small arms trafficking. They said they couldn't put their data up on the web for people, so we actually took the data, put it up on the web for them, and then handed them the disk that said, here's all your data. Here's how you can put it up on your website. There's a couple programs that you can use to do massive amounts of data crunching and movement. One's Mechanical Turk on Amazon.com has a program where you can actually ask people out there to do small tasks for small amounts of money, cents, that computers are bad at doing. We're using currently a service called Rent-A-Coder where we actually just pay someone, usually somewhere in the middle of nowhere, um, Belarus, uh, to do some coding for us. And so we're actually recreating, for example, the United States Congress Office of Technology Assessment. We're actually recreating the web archive for them and adding some new functions. The archive was living at Princeton for a while, but it's been sort of left to disrepair. So we're actually just re-putting it up. That's going to be launched in the next couple of weeks. The total cost for that was $500. So that's 750 documents so far that were re-put up, reorganized, and built a search engine on it and all through Rent-A-Coder. It costs us more to discuss it in office hours time than it did to actually have it done. These are the sorts of approaches that you can take to these sorts of things. One part that came out that the Federation of American Scientists also did was actually, for example, tracking and actually creating a map of the Chinese long-range intercontinental ballistic missile locations and revealed the new uh, design for one of their nuclear subs, all using Google Earth, where we actually just said that's a submarine that we've never seen before. That's an under-mountain you know, storage facility for that submarine. And so we released this data. They've now moved the submarine, but we found where they put it. And so <laughs> Google Earth is awesome. These are other ways that you can push and pull Congress. So Joanne started talking about the fellows programs. That turns out to be a great method for infusing people in. We're infusing people in for another direction, but we're also pushing and pulling in another way. A couple other things that I'm involved is engaging the public and getting them involved in these sorts of things. David directly addresses the scientific community through nature, which actually has been an incredible service. I think it's important to also engage the general public in trying to get these issues out there. I do a stint on a radio show called This Week in Science, where I talk about science policy and not dumb it down, but put it in a way that people can actually really start to wrap their heads around it, where you're not talking like a science wonk. That's an incredibly valuable thing. I think it's important for science in general to be spoken of without the jargon, but also science policy is equally fascinating at times, and you can speak about it without speaking about cloture votes and the like. You can, in fact, get people excited about things. So today, 
in the Senate was the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act passed after 15 years. You push that out, and so I believe NPR is going to actually cover it. The New York Times covered it the other day when some people we were involved with revealed openly that Senator Coburn had lifted his block on the bill. But that's the sort of thing that you can actually get the public engaged in and thinking about. I believe that bill is the first forward-looking piece of civil rights legislation that the U.S. has ever passed. It's not happening on any large scale right now, genetic discrimination, but it is happening a little bit. We're actually saying there's a great potential for this to happen, and they're going to stop it. So that's that's actually an incredible piece of legislation. I think I give you a smattering of a, a couple different approaches that are taken, but we can talk about it more later as we discuss these questions. Thank you, Michael. I think you were giving me the hint to get off. Subtle one. No. Um, trying to figure out your phone number. Last, we'll talk to David Goldston for a few minutes about his past roles and current roles in science and Congress. Thanks. In terms of my background, it's even more inappropriate than Joanne and Mike's. My academic background's in American history. I have a undergraduate degree in that and undergraduate degree and the coursework for a PhD. I got involved in science policy quite indirectly. I started on Capitol Hill as a press secretary and then was tired of doing that for various reasons, including, you know, after a while you're not even sure whether you're making things up or not. So I was looking for something else. My boss was interested in keeping me. There was a position open on the science committee. Those issues sounded interesting. This was back in 1985. So I figured I'd give those issues a try, and 23 years later, I'm supposedly an expert on science policies. You really need in science policy people from all different directions. You need people who have deep background in science. You need people who have deep background in social sciences, particularly economics. You need people who are generalists. It's a mix. And on our committee, we had quite a few science PhDs, most of whom started as AAAS fellows through the program that Joanne discussed, and some came through the academy and other places, and then we had people with more general backgrounds. It was an important thing to have that kind of mix, both for the credibility, to use the range of skills you need, and to be able to look at the issues from a lot of different perspectives. Let me talk briefly about just some sort of tips on dealing with Congress, which hopefully will also paint somewhat of a picture, as Joanne Mike did, about the way Washington works. One thing I'd say is Congress is remarkably open. Certainly there are some groups that have more influence than others, and sometimes that's unfortunate. But in terms of just the feel of the place, it is the most open, porous institution in the government. If you go in to the buildings on a day in which they're in session, the halls are, you know, as filled as the sidewalks of New York with people from all over the country, from all different interests, from all sorts of outside groups. One of the things I think that people are struck by when they end up working on the Hill is just how much interaction there actually is. It's important for people, and for scientists in particular, to be involved. I would say the most important thing for starters in getting involved is do your homework. That's what scientists always complain about when political figures talk to them, that they don't really understand what they're talking about, they didn't do any research. It's also important in the other direction. You really need to understand what issues before the Congress, if you're talking to an individual congressman or senator's office, what different pressures they have, what kind of area they represent, what their political philosophy is. These days, this is very easy research to do. I mean, the system, it's not supposed to require a degree to figure Congress out. It may require a degree to recover from having figured Congress out. But especially now with websites and with things like what FAS is doing, it's not hard at all to get the lay of the land. And, you know, reading a good newspaper every day will give you a lot of what you need, plus looking at the individual website. It's very important to not go in blindly and to understand the world that these people have to navigate. 
So there's basically two different types of issues that scientists tend to feel directly implicated in. One is science policy. These are issues about the conduct of science. They're most often funding issues, but they can be other issues about scientific fraud or occasionally about the actual research that's conducted, like stem cells, unusual in the sense that um, the political bodies don't usually get involved in the actual direct conduct of science that way. Um, on those issues, the most important thing to do is to be able to talk as specifically as possible. Many people come in and they've learned sort of the general verbiage of policy, which people in Washington can do in their sleep. You know, this notion science is important, it's needed for the future of the country and all that stuff. It's all true. Everyone actually believes it, believe it or not. It doesn't actually move the debate forward very much. What we really needed to hear was what actual thing would happen if we gave you an extra dollar? What kind of research would you actually do? The more you can talk about specifics, the more you can talk from your own personal experience, including on education. Members of Congress are much more inherently interested in education, actually, than in the details of the research, because they've all been to school and they all think that education is important. They think research is important, too, but they can't relate to it the same way. So the more you can be specific, the more you can talk about this is what really is at stake, not in a general sense that everybody knows how to mimic, but in a way that really draws on what you're actually working on. The other thing to understand is that while scientists are given really exceptional deference in the halls of Congress and really in government in general, and there's a, while scientists tend to walk around with this chip on their shoulder that nobody likes them, actually they're the one respected group and everyone tries to get scientists on their side, Despite that, there's also a sense that scientists are, as indeed they are an interest group, scientists coming in and saying we want money for research is dog bites man story. No one's surprised to hear that scientists think that they should get more money. That doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. In fact, it's an important part of the system to come in and explain that. Sometimes it works better, for example, if industry says to give universities more money because then it's a group that's not going to be the direct recipient talking about it. That's in addition to actual scientists making the point. What I always say is scientists come in and say, we're not like everybody else. We're not looking for money for our short-term personal benefit. We're looking for money for the long-term benefit of the country. It's just nobody comes into Congress and says we're looking for money for our short-term personal benefit. I mean, that's a good way to get indicted, really. I mean, <laughs> the only thing that distinguishes scientists is they're the only group that think they're the only group that's making that argument. So the first one is science policy. The second area is the numerous areas of policy that are influenced by science. So almost everything in environmental policy, health policy, these are areas where at least part of the decision before Congress or administration is based on some understanding of science. Here, the two pieces of advice I would give is, one, understand what's a science question and what's a policy question. Everybody in Congress wants to frame every issue as if science will be the determining factor because it's easier than admitting that it's a political question. And I don't mean political question in some evil electoral way, but politics in the sense of it's a choice. It's a values choice. It's a judgment. People would rather say, oh, the science is on my side. That's usually not what the deciding factor should be, because there's usually something beyond the science. Even if you take something like climate change, even if we all finally agree anthropogenic climate change is real, all the questions about what to do about it are not solely or fundamentally science questions. 
Congress likes to confuse these things. Scientists tend to do this, too, because everything looks like a science question to a scientist. I think it's great to have more scientists in Congress, but the one thing that drives me crazy is some of the rhetoric that goes with it. You know, most issues are not purely factual. There's a decision and a value to be put on. If you had 435 scientists in the House, I doubt every vote would be unanimous because science doesn't answer these questions. Science is analytical, but, you know, science is really not the only academic discipline that instills an analytical mind, so that's actually a little annoying to hear. The biggest thing is this notion that if everyone agreed on what the science was, that would resolve the issues is such a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of the way government should work. It's remarkable. A, most of these questions cannot be solved purely on science. And B, most questions that Congress has to deal with where there's a science question, science does not have a clear, uniform, certain answer. Again, climate change is sort of distorted the way I think the scientific community thinks about this because climate change is almost unique in that there was actually a political debate about a purely scientific question, i.e., is anthropogenic climate change real? There was an actual broad consensus on the answer, and it still took years and years and years to have an impact. I can't think of another issue where those are the factors at work. So climate change distorts the way people think about science and policy. It's important to try to make a distinction between science and policy. That doesn't mean that the scientists should not weigh in on the policy side of the question. It means that when you weigh in, you say, okay, now I'm talking as an informed citizen. Sometimes the areas obviously are grayer than others, but it's an important distinction. The second thing is to be very open about uncertainty and to understand that what to do in the face of uncertainty is a values issue, not a science issue. I'll finish with two stories that I love to tell that illustrate two fundamental fallacies that come up when scientists deal with Congress. One is to assume that being in Congress is just like being anywhere else and being everyone else, and the other is that it's nothing like being anyone else. Both of these examples come from another great program besides the AAAS one, which I always tout, is the Ecological Society of America has a program called the Leopold Fellows, where they train a set of ecologists, usually academic ecologists, both junior and senior, on how to be active in the policy sphere. It's a program that Jane Lubchenco helped set up. They have a mock hearing every fall as part of their training, and people really prepare for this closely, usually um, one of the mock congressmen, as opposed to just spending time mocking congressmen, which is a different thing. We spend the morning in this mock hearing, and, the, and it's videotaped, and they spend the afternoon being evaluated and looking over parts of the videotape. So it's a pretty intensive day. So here's the example of thinking the Congress is just like everybody else. So in one of these hearings, we were asking a fairly senior ecologist, do you think we should be spending money on X or Y? And X and Y were not like Iraq or fisheries. It was like this kind of fish research or that kind of fish research. And he sort of straightened up in his chair and reeled back. And he said, that's like asking me whether to spend money on apples or bookshelves. And then he was very happy he'd come up with something in oranges and sort of slumped back down in his chair. And I was ready to jump out of my chair and wring this guy's neck. This is a, an actual choice that Congress has to make every year. Put an extra dollar in the FBI or to NSF. For somebody from the outside to come in and say, oh, you know, I, that's a silly choice to ask me about, when these guys actually have to vote all the time on choices much harder than that that affect almost 300 million people is arrogant and ignorant beyond belief. On the other hand, the other 
way is to assume that it's a special place and they're not even human. I mean, there are ways in which they may not seem human, but really in person they are. So my favorite example of this is some scientist was testifying and making an analogy. I can't remember what she was explaining, but she said, it's like I have a two-year-old and we have this white carpet in the kitchen and I have to keep the two-year-old from spilling on the white carpet. And the analogy was clear. The point she was trying to make was actually clear without the analogy. Anyway, so during the evaluation I said, do you actually have a two-year-old at home and a white carpet in the kitchen? And she said, no. And I said, good. Because nobody heard another word you said. All we sat there thinking was, what kind of moron has a two-year-old and a white carpet anywhere? Not necessarily in the kitchen. I mean, I said, nobody heard another word you said. I mean, these people have raised children or been in houses where they were raised. I mean, it's just... Nobody lives like that. And the sense that it was like you could make things up because it was this rarefied theoretical atmosphere, I mean, was actually, you know, a sign of sort of a deeper misunderstanding. The interactions with Congress at their best are genuine conversations, and especially with the staffs as well as the members. And as I said, you want to do your homework. You want to understand the kinds of choices they have. You want to understand the, the kind of world that they're in, which is a world where, yes, they avoid questions when they can, but they also go to the floor and have to vote yes or no hundreds of times a month. But fundamentally, you want to have a conversation, and Congress really is the branch that's really designed for conversation. Thank you. You've all touched on a variety of topics that I think I might be able to include in one huge question that we can talk about a little bit. And then I'd really like to spend a lot more time um, with audience question and answer because I think that's really important. So we'll save the last half hour for that. My question is, Science Debate 2008 has been mentioned, which I'm not sure if everyone in the audience is familiar with, but it's a movement started by a few people and signed on by quite a few more groups to have science debated in a public atmosphere, particularly with the presidential elections coming up, to see what the big scientific issues are and open this very public forum for this debate. Joanne also mentioned the AAAS campaigning kind of in an advocate role behind the scenes and training scientists as fellows that can therefore advocate in offices and actually work toward these policy solutions. I think my broad question is to all of the panelists, what do you think science risks or what can it benefit from entering policy in such a public way? The problem is that you're mixing policy and politics, where Science Debate 2008 is really addressing the elections, which is a politics issue. What they're trying to do is get them to debate science policy. While the idea behind it in an ideal world is wonderful, at the end of the day, we don't necessarily want politicians, particularly our presidential candidates, to have a debate solely on science necessarily. It would be nice if they addressed it at all. We've had more questions on, and I'm not kidding, UFOs and on lapel pins than we've had on climate change. That's a big problem. It's a huge victory for this push for Science Debate 2008 if they just get a handful of questions that relate to issues like climate change. What are you going to do about cafe standards or gas mileage in cars? What are you going to do about science funding, for example? While scientists generally, when they approach the Hill, that is the main thing that they're asking about, the handling of science funding by the agencies over the years has been atrocious. The doubling of the NIH budget was really mishandled over a period of time. It would be nice if actually there was some stability given to science funding rather than the roller coaster that it's been on for a little while now. Flat funding the NIH, for example, which has happened the last number of years, it puts scientists on a roller coaster and it doesn't actually give stability. 
the idea behind Science Debate 2008, you know, has to be not necessarily having what they openly requested, which is that they stand up with podiums and debate science issues. At the end of the day, it would be a, a real improvement if they addressed any issues. As I said at the beginning, I think it's very important for scientists to be engaged in the policy process, and also, for that matter, in the political process. I think what sometimes gets confused is the sense that unless it's sort of front-page news, that it doesn't matter, and that the best way to deal with all issues is to get them to be front-page news. And I think that is a mixed bag, and I think that's where the, the decision needs to be. So, I mean, Joanne talked about how with the visa issue, a lot of it was done behind the scenes, and I think that was important. Now, we had some hearings on it, but really the most important thing we did was get the Government Accountability Office to actually get data on how bad the backlog was, because believe it or not, the State Department didn't have good data on visas. If you asked any of the first basic questions you would have to try to decide if we have too many or too few H-1B visas, there is no data. I mean, who are these people? What are they actually coming in for? For what kinds of jobs? Are they technicians or high-level scientists? Where are they coming? You can't get any of that. Similarly, with the student visitor visas, there wasn't a lot of data. Having a huge debate on this, sometimes you can start feeling like you're not believing in democracy, but it's a question of which kinds of issues. So one time when we started having a debate on that, we got a lot of how come you're not just taking Americans? Why are we letting these people in anyway, which was not the debate we wanted or expected to have. It was much easier to deal with the behind the scenes. Similarly, one of the former directors of NSF, Rita Caldwell, used to say that, you know, she wanted NSF to be as much a household name as NASA. This is at a point where NSF was getting steady increases every year. NASA budget were plummeting. Everyone knows NASA, but beliefs in NASA are extremely ambivalent and mercurial, and the idea that you want to be like NASA because everyone knows its name and that's going to guarantee you money is, you know, a false connection. So I think scientists being involved in the system is important. You want to be strategic about how you're getting involved in the system, how publicly, and you don't want to equate visibility with success. Mike's alluded a couple of times to the column I did at Nature questioning the wisdom of having a science debate. And one of the concerns was that the assumption of many of the scientists behind it was we'll start having this and we'll get NIH to double again. Well, if there's any sign of how making an issue a presidential issue doesn't necessarily come up with the right result, it's NIH, which got doubled way too quickly and quite foolishly in terms of the way it was implemented because it became a presidential promise that then no one could ever review and that wasn't actually helpful. I certainly agree that we want issues that have a science component. I don't view them as science issues per se. Climate change, energy, all those should be part of every debate. But a political debate is a particular kind of highly politicized forum, whether that's the best forum for science when one of the big complaints is that science has gotten too politicized is not clear to me. And many, many, many important issues in science policy that are decided in every administration. If you look at the list of questions that people have suggested for the science debate, it's a mix of things that you'd never want even a president in their eighth year of office to deal with, and issues that you'd be careful about asking because people would give a shoot from the hip answer without understanding all the implications. There were some issues on endangered species and property rights on the list, for example. And the final thing I'd say about that, which I actually didn't talk about in the column, is 
scientists, when they're requesting the debate, view it as some kind of platonic dialogue. In reality, what the media and candidates gather from a debate is someone won and someone lost. And if you want science to be the reason that somebody lost a debate and think that that's going to help you when an administration comes in, I think that is kind of naive. I was especially scared when the National Academy offered to hold the debate. So here's the National Academy, one of the few institutions that's still viewed by all sides as an honest broker in Washington is going to be associated by one party with the place they lost the debate. If there's anything more self-destructive than that, I'm not sure what it is, although I'm sure it'll come out sometime later in the year. I guess for the record, I should say AAAS is one of the organizations that has signed on among hundreds on the, the science debate 08. And as David also mentioned, we've also provided kind of a resource on the different candidates. My program specifically, we put together an overview of what the candidates have been saying on various science and technology policy issues. Our CEO wrote an editorial that was in the Philadelphia Inquirer not that long ago that kind of laid out, here's 10 examples of key issues that the next administration is going to have to face, policy issues that have a scientific component. The idea is that not only are we trying to inform our community about, you know, what is going on and what the candidates are saying, but it's also trying to make the candidates aware Whoever wins, these are key issues that they are going to have to face. And we hope that they will start thinking about them, whether it's in their platforms or in a speech. If it doesn't end up in a debate, okay, so be it. But what we're trying to do is to get them more engaged in these issues and thinking about them and setting their priorities for the next administration. With respect to the role that scientists play, I mean, I concur with everything that's been said. Yes, you should definitely be involved. You could have many different roles. You could be essentially a technical expert responding to questions or trying to explain something to a member of the Hill. You could be an advocate. And there's different layers or different types of advocacy. You can be an advocate for your discipline. You could be an advocate for your community, whether it's your university or your professional society. Or you could be an advocate for your particular program. The key things I think I would like to say is that you need to try and develop a relationship with policymakers. You need to be a valued resource that they know that they can trust and go to, that if I need a question because I am faced with a hearing tomorrow and I need to understand greenhouse gas emissions for the last 10 years and how Kyoto nations have been improving or not improving, where can I get that information? And if you're a reliable resource, they'll come back to you it's not just having a relationship with people on the Hill. People tend to make the mistake of thinking that everything is only done in D.C. And, yes, certainly that's true. But from the scientific community and the Leopold Fellowship that David mentioned, you know, they're not sending those people to D.C. They're sending them back to campus. Be a resource here. Members have to go home to their districts. They have a lot more time on their hands when they're back on the district. They're a little bit more relaxed when they're back in their districts. Work with them. Let them know you're here. I should also, as a caveat for all the government relation representatives I know that represent universities, is they probably wouldn't appreciate you kind of going, you know, all cowboy and heading up to the hill by yourself you really need to let them know if you're speaking on behalf of the universities or your program, there are layers of communication. There is bureaucracy and structure when it comes to that. Keep them informed about what you're doing as well. 
Can I just make a quick follow-up? We're sort of ignoring the elephant in the room here, which is the reason why this science debate 2008 thing came up at all and the reason why these science integrity issues come up often now is because people are pissed off about the administration. You know, there are now over 100 examples of politicalizations of very clear science issues at this point. You know, where David was talking before, where, you know, a lot of these issues aren't science issues, well, there's very clear examples now of politicalization of science, and frankly, their record on it stinks. And so people actually want candidates' cards on the table. When it comes to net neutrality, when it comes to a lot of these issues, they don't want obstructionists in, if sitting in Congress. They certainly don't want another series of really disgusting decisions made in the executive branch. And so what we're seeing is a backlash, and it's completely reactionary, without question. I don't think that people are being completely irrational when what they're asking for is not really a debate, but people put their cards on the table. When you look at the candidates' websites at this point for Congress and at the presidential level, they're with, I actually think Hillary Clinton's is pretty good. It's actually fairly detailed. But Barack Obama's and McCain's at this point are sparse on the best of days, Senator McCain's in particular is sparse on science, and you have to really look to find anything there of substance. So now you have to dig back into his record and where has he voted on a lot of these issues. And actually, as it turns out, you know, we're going to have an improvement next year no matter what. I don't think it's unreasonable for people to ask the cards on the table after having experienced what has really been awful for eight years. You know, we have this election website, and certainly scientists have become a lot more politically savvy. That's one of the reasons why you're seeing a lot more interest in this is you know, they are more involved. But in terms of the comment about McCain's materials being somewhat sparse, and I'm not going to disagree in terms of if you look at material, but don't confuse what's on a platform or a website and how a candidate chooses to campaign with how they may feel about science and the work that they may do in an incoming Administration. I'm not necessarily campaigning for any particular candidate. We're a 501c3. We're representing all of the candidates on our website. But McCain was chairman of the Senate Commerce Committee. He was the first senator, you know, to introduce cap and trade legislation. I mean, I wasn't beating up McCain. It's no, no. The, I mean, the point is in that terms of the, sparse, the, the people, point is that the reaction though that is that people are now actually require it. They want to see it up there. And I agree. McCain's record is actually fairly clear. He's been actually, you know, consistent on votes on on many, many issues. But people are looking to find information on, on these sorts of things, and they want to hear the candidates actually say it. I don't think that's necessarily such a horrible thing. I'll say one sentence, I think, or one sentence-ish, and then we can go to the question, which is just to confirm what both these folks said. I mean, McCain actually, the reason he chair of the Commerce Committee matters is because that's the committee with jurisdiction over science in the Senate. He's got a very clear record, which is certainly different from President Bush's. Also, his campaign has been searching for who their science advisors are going to be, and it is indeed true that the campaign, despite his record, is basically empty on the science portfolio right now. So both statements that he's got a clear record that's easy to look at and is not a typical conservative Republican record, and that there's nothing there right now, are both entirely true. <laughs> also, not just McCain, by the way. I don't like picking on Senator McCain at all. You know, well, Senator know Obama. Senator, exactly. <laughs> Senator Obama's site is not terrific on science. I would like to open it up to audience question and answer. I was struck during the, I think, the Republican debates that something like seven out of nine of the candidates were advocating for uh, rather than evolution for creationism or the Bible. 
So it seemed to me that these people felt that a non-empiric approach was what the American public wanted. So I'm much less heartened than you, sir. First of all, I would never defend what any of them said on evolution, so that's not my point. Two things for starters. One, they weren't necessarily advocating on evolution or saying they were asked their view on evolution. It wasn't a policy question. Actually, one of the things that scares me about the science debate is federalizing the debate on evolution is actually not going to be helpful to science. But I think, again, on the one hand, I mean, obviously evolution is a critical issue. It undergirds most of modern science, all of modern biology. On the other hand, it's actually a really bad um, barometer of what the public thinks about science because it confuses all these religious issues. I mean, the figures on what the public thinks about evolution are, needless to say, disturbing from a public point of view. If you ask the public who they would most trust in asking a question about evolution, off the charts, scientists and science teachers are the two answers. So people have extremely conflicted views on evolution, and to assume that because they're not where scientists are on evolution in the way that they talk about it, that means they're anti-science, I think is a mistake. It's certainly not true that because you don't believe in evolution that you're not interested in quote-unquote empirical data on climate. That's not the way it works. And one of the really interesting things about how strong the wall is between sort of what people talk about evolution and what they do on science policy, I have never heard anybody, no matter how conservatives, say, I don't believe in evolution, I'm going to stop funding those biologists. They always say, let's put more money into this stuff. So I think it's important for scientists to work on the evolution issue. There's lots of ways to do that. It's not a good issue to oversimplify is my only point. At the same time, scientists need obviously to do more work explaining evolution to the public. The one thing it does bring up is how they might run the Department of Education, which has been marginalized for not just the last eight years, but for a long time on science education. And perhaps the next president, we might want someone who has a more progressive view on science policy simply so that they can strengthen the Department of Education's role in creating a national science curriculum. Dare we suggest it. Right. Uh, since we brought up education, can you guys comment on the future of where we stand as a country in terms of math and science education and how that relates to Congress and scientific policy? There are a number of international studies that track how students perform in math and science, and it pretty much shows, you know, in fourth grade we do pretty well, eighth grade and twelfth, it just you start tanking. And I think we're 21st or 22nd. Estonia does better than we do, or, you know, something like that. Um, Why do we assume Estonia would be bad? I don't understand. <laughs> the Soviets were great on science. They, yeah. So Congress right now, I mean, there is the No Child Left Behind Act, which is an authorization bill to try and force a set of standards and to kind of get all local schools to meet a certain goals over a certain period of time, and they would do these yearly progress assessments and it's up for reauthorization, and Congress cannot come to an agreement on how to change it. But the problem is that when that was signed into law, it was a big bipartisan, bicameral effort. You had Senator Ted Kennedy and Representative George Miller, Democrats, you know, Massachusetts, California, all behind this bill, sent up to the administration, signed by Bush, and then to sit here and say, you know, gee, never mind, we think we didn't do such a good job. It's a little difficult and trying to figure out what are the problems and where do we go from here. So it's essentially going to be punted and it, it'll be taken up in the next administration. 
Three or four quick points on this. One, I mean, I think if there's any issue you could get universal agreement in Congress on, it's that we need to do more on science and math education. So there's no question about the fundamentals. I'd say, second, despite that, actually there's some controversy about different ways to interpret all these international exams and if we're actually in as bad shape as it looks. But I don't think anyone doesn't believe we couldn't make substantial improvement in our science and math education. That said, there's not consensus on how to do it even in the individual classroom, although AAAS has been working on this for years in Project 2061, and there's lots of the TIM study, which is known mostly for the international comparison data, actually has a lot of things on comparative teaching methods. There's plenty of stuff out there, but we're really not sure what to actually do, what the problem is. It obviously needs to be done differently for different students. At the policy level, it's even harder to figure out. I mean, what do you do from Washington to correct this? It's hard. You don't want to do things that backfire. And the fourth thing I'd say is the controversy over No Child Left Behind has nothing to do with science. It's about testing regimes, equality, what kinds of ways you measure schools, really fundamental questions about, again, what kind of education policy makes sense. And um, reading and math are the two areas that people are talking about that, but it's really a totally education philosophy debate. Not only is the bipartisanship broken down, but it's not clear, you know, what side is liberal or conservative. On the one hand, testing all the time drives teachers crazy. It's had all sorts of backfire effects. On the other hand, I think if there's one issue that the conservatives think Bush lost his mind on, it's this, because it's actually very intrusive on a federal basis, and it's a true belief in equality and actually trying to bring poorer and minority students up. And so it's a very confused debate. The way science should fit in, it, was, it would be nice if we really had more of a science of education. I mean, we're working on that. NSF funds more cognitive research with a hope that actually what we learn on psychology and neuroscience will actually uh, help inform the education debate. If you go back and read 19th century debates about education, they are painfully familiar. You know, is rote learning better or concept? How do you do this? What do you do with immigrant children? How much testing makes sense? What concepts are important? How practical should the education be? I mean, there is no issue we're debating now that wasn't being debated in, say, 1880 before education was even compulsory. I'll just mention two quick things. So, one, there is one science issue with the no child left behind, which is that science is not actually made part of the accountability of schools. It may be good, maybe bad, but for sure has led to science being neglected against reading and math. Second, we have made a very important move to make sure that we don't actually measure number 22 against other nations, which is that we're not going to participate in that test again. So that was, you know, <laughs> yeah. this next round we actually backed out of it. I think we need to wrap things up. I know you all probably have a lot more questions to ask, um, but please join me in thanking all of our panelists for joining us tonight and for all of their thoughts. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you thought about this podcast and other Science in the City podcasts. Email your comments to scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Leave a voicemail at 212-298-8654.
or send your feedback snail mail to Science in the City Podcast, care of the New York Academy of Sciences, 7 World Trade Center, 250 Greenwich Street, on the 40th floor, New York, New York, 10007. To find out more about the intersection of science and culture in New York City, visit our website at scienceinthecity.org. See you next week. Bye.